Hello, Polytopians. Thanks for tuning in to the Polytopian Times. I'm your host, Sam, and today we are joined by the wonderful East Park. Glad to have you here. Hello, Sam. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Indeed, always a pleasure having you on. <laughs> today, folks, we are here to talk about our retouch on the Umaji tribe, a look again at their lore and a proper touch base on their strategy, giving a change to the meta. So uh, without any further ado, let's dive right on in. The desert wind blows like a furnace against your back as you stand in front of the entrance to the cave you sheltered in during the sweltering heat of the day. It's dusk and the fading rays of the sun set the dunes between you and the distant Umaji fortress town of Bagahamu aglow in a brilliant orange red. Bagahamu is the main outpost here on the desolate fringes between the Umaji and the Chinchis empires. The two tribes are hostile to each other and border raids are frequent which is why Bagahamu is one of the few walled cities you've come across in your travels. The gray stone walls frame in the far off sandstone buildings. There are a few farms alongside an oasis on the eastern side of the city. The water in the irrigation ditches glittering in the setting sun amongst the crops. Distant palm trees circle the oasis, their leaves swaying in the evening breeze. Not much life lies in the desert otherwise. The dunes sweep away around you, the sandstone cliffs and mountains block away behind you, while in the distance, more of the sandstone mountains and cliffs frame off the eastern edge of the desert. Besides the dunes, there's only the occasional Saja cactus, one of the few wild-growing edible plants here. The Saja cactus are crucial to the Imaji's way of life. They are filled with a watery juice that's chock full of nutrients, providing both a necessary way to stay hydrated and full. Without the reliability of those cacti as a water and food source, the Umaji would have been hard-pressed to eke out enough to support small clans around the oases. The Saja cactus is also said to have healing properties, as well as the possibility to cure the yellow mountain disease that plagues the northern provinces of the Umaji. Unfortunately, the cacti are hard to harvest without the proper tool. To counter this, the Umaji and their ingenuity came up with a cacti blade a special knife with a handguard and a long hooked end to protect the user from the poisonous thorns the Saja are covered in. Luckily, you already have enough provisions to reach Baga Hamu without needing to risk the needles the Saja. You set out down the road to the city, and before long, night falls. You've been careful to travel only at night in the desert when the temperature drops. It served you well so far, and this night begins to cool as always. After an hour or so of travel, you crest a dune and see a herd of wild shebron galloping in the depression past you. Their black stripes are a shocking contrast against their white fur in the dark of the night, although their hooves are much quieter on the sand than the chinchi or imperious breeds. You figure they're headed towards the oasis on the side of the city. Shebrons are surprisingly vain animals, and they take pleasure in examining their reflections when they can see it. The oases provide the best available option, as the wild herds tend to travel from one to the another. As you near the town, you see a tower rising out of the rest of the buildings. This one you know is too short to be the original, but it's a replica of the mausoleum of Ochebe, a temple for the Umaji to pay their respects and honor Mubahasi, the undefeated. Mubahasi could be considered the true genesis point of modern Umaji culture, a legendary conqueror and the unifier of the seven original Umaji clans. Back in those days, the seven clans were small, argumentative, and territorial powers that had wildly different interpretations of the proto-tribe's way of life after the end of the civil war of the ancients. That core group had spread out across the deserts; so they could sustain themselves around the oases that dotted the environment. As the decades had passed by, their beliefs and cultures shifted subtly until distinct differences between them caused strife. 
Among these many doctrinal conflicts, Mubahasi was born into the Imaji clan, the son of one of the chiefs. The Imaji clan and the Limdor clan had been in disagreement about the proper definition of Ahamu for the better part of two decades at that time. Ahamu refers to a group of Politokians, no matter the context, be it a town hall, a city, or a battlefield. The argument was about what number of Politopians were needed to be able to call something a Hamu. The Limdor were flexible in their definition, and groups as small as three could qualify for the honorific term. The Umaji, on the other hand, were traditionalists and reserved the honorific for groups with a minimum of five people, a minimum they deemed necessary to establish a proper hierarchy within the Hamu. The disagreement had escalated between Mubahasi's childhood, breaking out to a number of skirmishes and raids between the two clans. On Mubahazi's 19th year, the Limdor began to increase the sheer aggression of their raids. What were before small strikes taking valuables or dispatching targeted belligerents evolved into a scorched earth approach as the Limdor appointed a new chief, Julim Bahadur. Julim was an extremist in his views on the Umaji, and they decided that the Limdor needed to purge the Inazai's heretical Umaji from the desert. He led raids where whole villages were slaughtered and their crops taken, with what remained burned in the fields. It was this that led Mubahasi's father to organize a rapid defense force to respond to the sudden raids, the Onjimu Riders. Mubahasi was given command of the Riders, and a network of scouts was erected to attempt to give the Riders time to strike. When next the Limdor raided, the scouts were able to give just enough warning to the Onjimu Riders that they could reach the village and defend their people. The Riders were able to push the Limdor raiders back, but in the struggle, Mubahasi's father was pulled from his chevron and trampled by an enemy rider. His father died in Mubahasi's arms on the battlefield. It was this moment that changed Mubahasi forever. With his hatred of the Limdor freshly kindled, Mubahasi went from village to village in his tribe, gathering as many riders as he could together. Word went out, and before long, riders began to come to Mubahasi. The Onjimu riders quickly grew to become a horde in their own right, the largest military gathering the desert had seen yet. It was with this overwhelming force that Mubahasi set out for the Limdor's capital, the aptly named city of Limdor, ready to slaughter the chief and nobles and claim the Limdor's land and people for the Umaji. In the following battle of the Limdor dunes, the Onjimu riders smashed the Limdor's defenses and captured their chief, Julim Bahadur. Mubahasi orchestrated his execution, using it both for vengeance for his father's death and as a show of the dominance of the Umaji over the Limdor in the form of the new conqueror's cultural beliefs. Specifically, Mubahasi had the execution set up to demonstrate what number of polytopians was needed to form a Hamu. In the central courtyard of Limdor, Mubahasi had Julim Bahadur tied to three Chevron riders, each tied to either an arm or a leg. On his command, the Chevron were driven away from each other a specific short distance. The ropes tied between each of Julim's limbs and the Chevron's pulled taut as they moved and began to stretch out his joints. Before they could go too far, Mubahasi had then stopped and commented that three riders couldn't get the job done and didn't deserve to be called Hamu. So he instructed a fourth to join in, tying itself to the remaining limb. Again, the Shebron riders were ordered to ride away from each other, but given the command to stop just before damage could be done. At this point, Mubahasi commented that even four riders weren't enough to get the job done and likewise didn't deserve to be called the Hamu. And so Mubahasi had a fifth rider join in, tying the rider to Julum's neck. This time when the order was given, the riders sprang forth and no command to stop came. Julim split apart into pieces and Mubahasi made a speech about five being the proper number for Humu, finally decided in effect. Following the grisly conquering of the Limdor, Mubahasi turned his attention to the other tribes of the desert, 
intent on ending the ceaseless strife of the clans by establishing his interpretation of Imajiwe as the way of the desert. By the time Mubahasi was 30, he had defeated the other five tribes and unified them all under the Umaji banner. To truly ensure his people's culture wouldn't go through the disunification they'd gone through so many centuries ago, Mubahasi gave the Onjimu riders new purpose. Instead of riding to war, he would ride through the villages, sharing news with the town folk through lyrical poetry. In the centuries that have passed since the Onjimu riders became poetic town criers, they've developed the tradition into a competitive sport, one that even has regional styles, reflective of the original seven clans, one of the few ways they're still recognized. Mubahasi lived to a ripe old age of 84, spending many vacations at his villa in the oasis of Ojibek. After his passing, the mausoleum of Ojibek was erected to honor his memory in the place he loved most. Many cities in the desert had since erected replicas to honor Mubahasi and the true Hamu. Before long, you're through the gates of the city and looking up at Baga Hamu's mausoleum. It stretches up, the pear-shaped dome at the top slicing into the moon above it. Around you are sandstone buildings, some with beams sticking out from the sides of the roof. On these beams have been tied green canopies, no doubt to provide some desperately needed shade during the heat of the day. The streets around you are still busy at this hour, filled with Umaji dressed in yellow robes and thin headscarves to protect against the dust and the sun during the height of the day. A trader hawks hollowed out Saja cacti from the bin next to him, and another vendor has an array of Yudaki carpets for sale. Across the street, a merchant sits outside their stables, eyeing passersby to see if they might need a stout shepherd. You pass by, your destination lies another street down. The Mubahamu Inn is a sprawling three-story structure with rooms arrayed around a central courtyard, where tea and other more inebriating drinks are being served. You stride past tables and potted palm trees until you reach the bar. It's not long before you brought a hot cup of ulu tea, a mostly flavorless beverage made of desert herbs. It soothes your tired mind as you wait for your room to be prepared. So that's a little taste of the uh, the lore for the Imaji. That was a lot of lore. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was, was a little bit more given as uh, how the Imaji became what they are. So I figured I'd run with it this time. Whoa. And that story of the origin of the Hamu, that's um, pretty gruesome. Wow. <laughs> I've never heard that. Isn't that like there's a torture called quartering where you like, yeah. You pull someone apart, but with this, you added a fifth to the. Ooh, that's just, I don't know. Kind of gross, man. Well, <laughs> hopefully that one's faster because, you know, he just pop right off. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it was pretty gruesome. <laughs> but hey, what do you get when you're a desert tribe built about raiding other people, right? Yeah, I know that, I don't know as much about their lore, but I know that the Hamu, that's like a super popular that's a very common i don't know defining trait of the umaji for sure <laughs> yeah yeah everything to them is new <laughs> well let's talk about some other facets of the umaji while we're here right so yeah, um we're going to talk about what like their terrain economy oh, oh yeah yeah we got to talk about all that good <laughs> stuff <laughs> so starting off well uh let's look at their terrain first off so yeah they have 20% of the forest that most tribes have. That's right, 0.2 times the forest that you gotta have. <laughs> the same with a wild game. It's a desert, you just don't have many oases to go to. You also have only half the mountains uh, and half the water. Again, a lot of fields. 
Otherwise, everything's fairly default. I mean, it's interesting if you look at it, at the spawn rates, there's about roughly an equal chance of getting fruit or getting, say, a crop in that field. But uh, the nice thing is, if you look at the rates themselves, they uh, they actually, so they have fewer fruit than barter, and that sucks because that's the first resource you rely on. But they do have the second most crops, second only to Zabasi, the literally the farming tribe. So I mean, very simplified, streamlined approach to economy. You literally just go down one route to getting some economy up, and then the other thing you can do is just get roads since, you know. Yeah. Can be using so a lot of riders. Very few forests, very few animals, less mountains, less mines, less fruit. Um, they do have a fair amount of crops. So, what's their um, sand spawn rate? Is it like five hundred and thirty-three percent? I think. <laughs> I don't know. I hate sand. It's coarse. <laughs> <laughs> it's Not the homage. They love the sand. <laughs> <laughs> fairly true. Fairly true. Uh, I mean, it's definitely double that of their water spawn rate. <laughs> <laughs> so much sand. Uh, uh, it feels like everything is. Now, uh, I guess that works out for him, though. So they start out with the riding tech, and that's nice because, I mean, at least there's not a lot of stuff to get in the way of you actually getting two movement out of your riders. Yeah, riding, I mean, I think riders are really the most versatile. and Yeah, best unit in the game, hands down. They can move How the fastest. Like if I had to pick one unit, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and they can move... And I call it a bounce, which is probably not the right technical term <laughs> for it, but they can hit and then find a new spot to land on. Yes, yeah. Escape is a marvelous ability that I think they are the only standard tribe unit that has escape. Where they just swoop in, attack, and run off. It means you can like have nine of them hit the same target at once or um, you know, spread things out so knight can't get a chain afterwards. Also, yeah, like you're saying, a lot of great stuff you can do there um i mean some other perks they've got is that fast exploration expansion um because you start out with a rider and get moving fast if you get a second rider you can use them in tandem to reveal more terrain than like a warrior could um not necessarily better or worse than some of these other expansionist tribes i think at the end of the day for example if you want to go with expansion your doc's probably going to do yeah, you a lot better yeah. But hey, uh, they're free and they still do an okay job and riders are good. So that's something. Um, and early game riders are nice. Like you were saying, you can um, honestly get up the bare minimum of an economy and just start attacking with riders because you have, right? Um, I think people have this image of Omaji being this big exploration tribe. But the thing is, like you said, unless you use two riders in tandem, you can't move through fog any faster with a rider than you can with a warrior. So really, I mean, yes, they, riders are great and they do, you can explore better with two, but like, it's not, it's not this powerhouse exploration yeah. tribe. I think Yadok is more of an exploration tribe than Imaji, honestly. Hands down, honestly, both Yadok and Chinchi, and I mean, beyond those, those are the only three you'd even consider it. And Umaji is this weird place where it's like, it's not particularly great at being an early aggressor tribe like Vengir or Hudrik. It's not particularly good at being an early expansion tribe like Yadok or Chinchi. Um, it's in this weird zone between the two where it's just adequate at both at most. And then that bad economy just hurts them. I think it, it is more... I think it can be more of an aggressive tribe. If you 
Yeah. You're left, I, you know, if you're on a land map and you have a, a land connection with your opponent, man, that early rider rush, it can be so powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, it really just comes up to how you play with them, but that's really one of their few ways to, you know, get on in there. And again, that's one of the few perks you get. You, you do have that, again, decent early game military power, but um, again, it's going to come at the cost of no economy, right? But, yeah, and that's their big drawback is, I mean, the only tribe with the worst economy, I would say, is Aquarian, but Umaji really... Unless you can get your farms going, then then they do have some. But by the time you get to farms, it's like, nope, you should have gone Rider Rush. Right. Yeah, as far as Umaji goes, I mean, if you're going to bother with an economy, it's a simple track. Your organization, because that'll pretty much get you everywhere. After that, roads will help you level up a second time, so you maybe get that five stars back if you have enough fruit. Um, and it's good for riders, because you're going to need roads for that anyways. You might as well get that built in. Beyond that, farming is pretty much the only other viable option. Yeah, sure, you could go with mining if you have mines. You could go with ports if you have the option for it, but it's a lot of cost. And like you said, you're better off spending those stars just getting riders to go do military stuff early on before your opponent has swords. So, Sam, I have a question for you. <laughs> yes. Do you ever start out with two riders? uh on occasion i mean so starting advice it really depends but like let's say you want to be really cheeky and you know you're not playing against a super skilled player or you're on an extremely tiny map and you just want to make as much early contact as possible you could do that it's not a great idea it's going to probably lose you 90 percent of the games you try it with but um you know once you do it every once in a while it's kind of satisfying to run out and forward settle someone with two riders when they go in tandem and then split off right in front of the enemy capital you know if you pull it off on a tiny map um again on that 10 percent of the time you do uh otherwise i think our uh, the best start is in general to go with uh, a warrior along with that rider instead of two riders um because going to cost a little less they're just as effective at exploring once you actually hit the fog right exactly it's all about hitting that fog i i agree i like to use two riders on a small map like you said forward settling you really want to get to those villages before your opponent and if you have two riders in tandem it can really pay off, but it's also a risk, right? If you send your two riders in a direction that's, you know, empty and is a bust, then you're like, oh, oh well, now I have two riders and there's no resource and no village. Oh, crap, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you turns behind and there's streets ahead. And then, I mean, I guess the other bad potential option is you you run out and you're like oh it's an empty looking area right now and then your opponent sees you and gets to just hit you and run off with their warrior rider you know uh, it's gonna be bad for you because riders are so fragile i mean so that's yeah that's kind of the risk with using your riders off to explore versus just sending out a horde of warriors um that's the other nice thing about getting the uh, the warrior and the rider combo is you can go right for uh, organization on the second turn right yeah yeah, I, I mean, I still think writers, you have to go aggressive. And one thing I'm still learning is how to use them and their zone of control after you attack, right? You attack mm -hmm. and then you can escape. And where you place that writer after the bounce, it's just, it's really critical and it takes 
it takes planning and you have to imagine what is your opponent going to do, right? What is my opponent going to do? So where am I going to put this writer to either block them or be in a spot where it can take advantage next turn or, you know, just bounce it onto a, a resource, like onto a ruin or another village. Right. Absolutely. And you really got to pay attention to know, like, where's the best spot? Because, yeah, a lot, especially when I'm saying... So, I mean, it's useful for ruins or for taking villages, especially if you're in a border conflict there. But really, when you come into sieges in like the early mid game and you're taking that first village or two and you know, like, OK, they can get two riders in range and a warrior. And um, that would be enough to clear me out of the rider or warrior I have in the village. Uh, the best way to prevent them from being able to actually get in range is just to bounce and put your rider in front of the village. Now, they can't get in range because they're going to hit your zone of control before they get in range. They'd have to kill your units, which will distract from them. It'll take manpower just to clear the way for another unit to try and actually hit the unit that's sieging the city. So definitely yeah. good ways to use it. Yeah. The other thing I think it's really key is thinking about cycling your attacks. So if there's a you know, a single square that you can attack from, you can get in there with your rider, attack and get away. And then let's say you can move in a warrior and then it would move forward. It, it's, it's just really tricky thinking about the order that you attack in with the rider, right? Yeah, absolutely. You, uh, and I mean, another thing with that cycling is like you were saying, you want to sort of, you know, just make sure you're not losing an attrition war because i mean especially with rider conflict i find even more than like warriors and stuff um attrition is really important with them and i mean we can touch on that in a second or two in a little more detail but like yeah i think that's a really good very important thing to keep in mind with that um, right the order you attack is also important i find if you're if you have a city under siege right so if mm -hmm. let's say your city is being occupied by an opponent warrior if you finish the kill with a rider you can bounce that rider away and create a new unit in that city but if you finish the kill and with another type of unit that cannot escape then you cannot make a new unit in that city so you want to remember like okay finish with the rider if possible if you know you know what i'm yeah. saying Oh, absolutely. And that's a good rule of thumb because you want to be able to make that fresh warrior or, I mean, if you're lucky, a defender or a swordsman, something needy to occupy mm -hmm. the city. You don't want to leave a rider there. You don't want to leave. Exactly. Yeah. The only time you want to leave a rider there is when you're upgrading to a veteran. And I love this finishing move <laughs> yes. so much. And I've seen some really smart players do what they call a capital snipe, where yeah. you have a rider who has you know two out of three kills and then it goes into the capital kills whatever unit is there promotes to a veteran has the 15 hit points and then it's like boom game's over it, it's just oh it's amazing when i see that pulled off properly it is fantastic honestly at that point the only thing they have to worry about is someone trying to level a city out and that's extremely hard to pull off in the early game it's one of the few ways umaji can regularly reliably win the game yeah and i think it's important to keep track of those kills mm -hmm. on your riders um i used to always try to get veteran warriors but i think it's more powerful to get a veteran rider just because they can move around and there's just more opportunities to like put that veteran rider where you want it to be 
absolutely they're uh, they're very fast and that's on the note of that attrition warfare we were talking earlier you don't want to lose your riders when you to attack maybe attack and send them back on the roads into the rear of your lines where they can heal up back to 10 health so you can get another kill later on um because if you can keep both the larger number of riders and get more veterans you have a uh, much more viable force on the move i've seen a lot of uh, players where it's like even and relatively even production terms of riders mm. some players win where they keep their riders alive they get some veterans they just have to survive a couple of turns to get there yeah well and it's like you said the combination of riders and roads right so if you can mm -hmm. hit and then bounce your rider onto a road it's just uh, it's just really a powerful combination yeah insanely and i mean that's one of the few times they can be useful for even exploration um you know, say you want to go get to a fast city and, um, you know, you can see just the edge of it or you can see a mountain nearby and you run along roads to get out of that really quickly. That can give you a way to speed faster than like somebody who doesn't have roads or is trying to use a warrior on roads because you move the four tiles in that turn if you're at least available on roads. Um, even then, they're not that great. And that's a mid-game play. So, yeah, you know, it's not an expansion later thing. Yeah. Later on. All right, so another question for you. <laughs> what is a good counter for Omaji? <laughs> <laughs> well, that one's, uh, I mean, I got it. It's so easy to counter them. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's talk about giving them a taste of their own medicine. You could just forward settle them. They're really, really weak if you push them early on. They, they, they really can't fight back effectively. You take any cities near them and that's where that's where they are for the rest of the game. They're going to have a devil of a time trying to push back without using riders, spam. And it's not that hard to counter if you have an economy to support making more riders than they can. Um, I mean, beyond that, honestly, yeah. every tribe play, uh, you just use a turn zero tribe. Um, yeah. I mean, any tribe's better, but really turn zero tribe because then you just are guaranteed to have a great economy. Barter is going to be laughing their butt off while they just. Yeah farm out giants and um yeah umaji's like i have a turn three city now again even yadak <laughs> is better it's like if there's oh hands down yeah because they can build an economy and expand at the same time right yeah to me it's just about doing that rider rush being aggressive not even really worrying about developing your economy like that's just yeah i don't know yeah Again, not too hard to counter one of the uh, weakest tribes in the game. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we have to ask ourselves, based on that, why would you play why? Umaji? Uh, uh, Maybe I, you really like sand. Oh, yeah, could be. <laughs> you know, like you just want to be at the dunes all day. Um, okay. Maybe uh, you reasons. like being poor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I guess... Um, if you want to have the, the the earliest riders humanly possible for a yeah. rider rush, that's one of the only reasons you would use them. Or uh, if you if you just hate complex economies, like you just absolutely hate how complex every other tribe's economy is. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's going to be a really bad economy. It's not going to give you a lot of stars per turn. It's not going to go many places. But like, it's really easy. You only need three techs. That's it. I mean, honestly, you can get away with just two. Um, if you want to just ride a rush and not worry about farms. And once you get farms, like, I really wouldn't bother with much else. Um, if you're really hard-pressed, you could try and pull out swords and stuff. But if you're stuck in that kind of a fight, you probably already lost because your opponent probably had a much better economy a lot earlier on and has more techs than you know. Yeah, the only 
the one thing you can pull off is with roads and farms, right? You can usually <laughs> get your cities up to a decent size. And if you have enough roads, right, you can level up your capital. But I really, with Umaji, you have to, you have to finish it fast. You have to go aggressive. Once you get into the later game, any other tribe's going to out economy you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very quickly. <laughs> So, folks, that was a look at Umaji. Um, I hope you don't feel too put off about playing them. I know some people who just love Rider Span absolutely still find the tribe to be darling, and I'm not going to look down on them at all. Some of them are some of the best players in the game. Um, or you do what we do, and we do an Umaji mirror. Like, that's fun. I think huh. mirrors are more fair. Oh, absolutely, in general. Um, or even if you want to do like a free tribe battle royale and you don't feel like picking one of the turn zeros and um, I guess mountains don't sound super great. Um, although, yeah, it's a weird time when Chin Chi is the better tribe, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sam, before we go, I want oh, yes. to put in a plug. Oh, yes, yes. Let's plug our pluggables, please. So I'm really excited. There's going to be a new free-for-all tournament coming in July. I can't oh, give too many details, um, but it will be an official tournament. It's going to be sponsored by Mijiwan. There should be an announcement in the app. Um, and that idea is to focus on diplomacy. So it's going to be um, free-for-all games where the top half of the surviving players move on to the next round. So for example, if it's an eight player free for all, when there's only four players left in the game, those four players advance to the next round. So it's really gonna almost simulate um, the idea of a diplomatic victory, right? Cause a lot of people yeah. ask for that. Like, like I just wanna win when my team wins. So it's gonna be, um, using that idea and really using diplomacy and, and, and alliances and um, so look for that it will be coming in july very cool very cool that's uh that's something to get excited for folks and i mean who knows uh you know stuff like that's a great reason to bring back that esports update that we saw a little bit of during the beta i know it's uh lurking out there somewhere <laughs> Yeah, so I'm really excited. Um, I'm organizing that. It's going to be through the official Polymain Discord server, um, but details will be coming in the beginning of July. All right. Well, you heard it here first, Polytopians. Stay tuned on Polymain because uh, some cool stuff is coming. We've got a brand new official tournament to talk about next level. You have to uh, give that a try. And it will be in the app, so hopefully there'll be instructions there too. Oh, fantastic. Even better. Well, Lovely. Well, uh, thanks as always for tuning in, Polytopians. Um, we don't have too much. Well, actually, I think before we go, one last call out while we're here. I just uh, want to give a special call out to Dan Eleven Pan. I don't, uh, I don't know if he'll be catching this episode or not, but uh, been a huge help to the server and uh, done a lot for the Polytopian times in general. Just wanted to throw out one last acknowledgement for him and all the uh, hard work he's done. Really amazing fellow who's really helped us out a lot and uh we just want to wish you all the best uh moving forward you know yes thank you tan <laughs> you're wonderful it's always a pleasure he's yeah i i agree he's a delight 
Absolutely. And I know uh, he is on to even bigger and better things. <laughs> well, that ought to wrap up today's episode, Polytopians. Next week, we'll, uh, well, the week after next, we'll be chit-chatting about barter. And uh, until then, stay happy, enjoy your Polytopia games, and uh, see ya.